Before there was Signal, before there was WhatsApp, the realm of secure encrypted messaging was ruled by the off-the-record secure messaging protocol, created as an alternative to PGP that introduced security properties like forward secrecy and deniability that were considered exotic at the time. Now, more than a decade later, off-the-record messaging or OTR has been largely sidelined by variants of the Signal protocol. But a small team of cryptography engineers is still working on pushing off-the-record messaging forward by focusing on use cases that they argue aren't sufficiently covered by Signal. But what even is deniability, and how much does it matter in the real-world contexts of secure messaging? Sophia Selly from Cloudflare joins us today's, in today's episode to talk about this and more. Sophia Selly is a cryptography researcher and implementer at Cloudflare. She currently leads the design and implementation of OTR version 4. She is also working on modeling deniability, strengthening the usability of cryptographic implementations, and analyzing how digital tools are uh, used with regards to gender-based violence. Uh, Sophia, thank you so much for joining us on Cryptography FM. Thank you so much for inviting me and having me here. It's really a really amazing podcast. Great. Um, so, uh, actually, I'm really excited about this episode because you're working on the project that got me first interested in cryptography um, like 12 years ago or something, a very long time ago. So the first ever thing that I used in cryptography was actually the OTR plugin for uh, Adium, which was at the time a macOS um, plugin like macOS app for like chatting. It, it it had this revolutionary feature where you could chat on MSN Messenger and Yahoo Messenger at the same time. You know, mind blown. And it had this plugin called OTR, and you could encrypt your conversations. And that was the first thing. I uh, I I remember this was probably the first time I ever used end to end encryption. I used OTR before using PGP, and so I wanted you to talk about off-the-record messaging and maybe give us an introduction into its history and what does it even do and uh, how did it uh, come about? Yes, for sure. So OTR stands for off-the-record messaging and it's a cryptographic protocol that was created a long time ago. Um, it was first created by the publishing of a paper that was authored by Nikita Borisov, by Ian Goldberg and by A. Group. And um, what they did is that they look at the current state of the art of the different protocols that were used to communicate over the internet, over digital tools. And they look at the kind of security and privacy properties that they were given. And they ask the questions to themselves if, the, if those properties that they were trying to give were enough. Um, and what they found is that they were not enough. Um, so what they look mainly is that they look at the two protocols that were like popular at the time, which was uh, SSL, as it was called TLS at the time. And they also looked at PGP. And what they realized is one of the main concepts that these two protocols had and have until this day 
was to give confidentiality of the data that was being transmitted, and therefore they had a high focus on the security of, uh, of the conversations or the communications that were happening in the digital world. But what they realized is that they really didn't have that much uh, privacy properties being given uh, to the end users. So they analyzed uh, PGP and they found out that uh, while the confidentiality of the conversations by using PGP is actually preserved at some form, what they notice is that it's not enough um, because with PGP it's possible that if you get to, um, somehow you get the keys that were used for a conversation, you are able not to only encrypt the message that right now is being transmitted or a message that you were able to to get at some point in time, but you're also able to um, decrypt past or future messages. So they really thought that this was not a nice property to give, so they wanted to give something more with a protocol that they were proposing. So that's basically how forward secrecy was born, right? Yes. This is, I'm, not, I'm not sure about this, but it's probably maybe the first time we ever had forward secrecy in sort of real world user focused settings. Um, and so uh, I'd like to ask you, so why do you think that OTR managed to pull off forward secrecy? And even to this day, we look at, for example, uh, Slack and um, other sort of, you know, tools that require a searchable history, right? And because of that yeah. searchable history, we see that forward secrecy is not something that people have been able to implement. Well, is, there, is there hope, you know, do you think we'll ever get uh, forward secrecy in those settings at all? I think I hope so. Um, one of the reasons why OTR managed it is because they came, I think they were the first to come with this sort of creative idea that this is something that we should give. Um, probably around there was not this notion, there was only the notion of let's have one key and encrypt them all and an attacker would not actually want to decrypt past or future messages. It's only the threat model that I had in mind was the attacker would only want to actually decrypt messages that were like, being transmitted at that time. But they came with this idea that maybe there's another threat model of an attacker who also wants to be able to decrypt, especially future messages. In a way, it's a little bit more difficult in past messages because you would have to be an attacker that has watched the network for X amount of time and sort of messages, and then get there the key and be able to decrypt back in time messages. So they came with this idea. At the time of the main paper that they published, um, they call this property in a really uh, forward secrecy, they call it perfect forward secrecy, and I know now in the academic literature it's not called that anymore, it's just forward secrecy because there's not, because there's like um, not a really good notion if protocols actually give the property in a perfect way or what it means to give it in a perfect way. So yeah, I hope that other protocols manage to do that and other applications manage to do that, but I think it's mostly because sometimes people don't see this as an actual threat model um, that exists out there, that an attacker will be decrypting past or future messages, so they will only be interested in decrypting the current message that is being sent. Which is actually not true, because an attacker gets like the whole logs of all of the messages um, stored in some server, then it will be easy to actually decrypt them. I think that's why. So I, I guess we're lucky because um, OTR set the standard, right? When Signal came along, they really had to focus on forward secrecy I mean, I'm sure they focused on it because they were convinced it was a great idea, but OTR was setting a precedent. Mm -hmm. And now today you look at all secure messengers and all of them have forward, well, a lot of them have forward secrecy. 
And so that's really cool. But one property that has been special about OTR, I can see you, you, you know what I'm <laughs> building up to here, is um, deniability. So deniability is something that I personally have never seen. Uh, well, Signal actually does claim to have some deniability um, and maybe we can talk about that more. But really, the, the the big deniability protocol has always been OTR. And even today, OTR is still special because of its focused on deniability. So what is deniability and why is it a big deal? So yeah, um, on the first paper, so this was a property that actually was born with the protocol itself. Um, not in the sense that it was not around as a theoretical concept in the past, it was, but it was the first protocol who took the, that theoretical concept and put it into practice because there was already a notion of deniable encryption um, by Canetti and other papers. So mainly what OTR did was took that property actually into practice because what they did is that they looked at PGP and they found out that with PGP you have to see that if you are indeed sign a message, um, there's like an irrefutable proof that you indeed offer that message that could be used in the future to say, yes, indeed, this is a message that I was signed because the digital signature in PGP will sort of work as analogous to what a um, real-world non-digital signature works like, that if you sign a paper with your signature, then that's valid in court or any kind of legal or, or societal um, thing that you have to do. So that's what they look like and they say, okay, this is not a cool property because um, probably people don't realize when they're using um, instant messaging conversations, they don't want actually that the small messages that they send over chat in a really informal way, they will probably don't want uh, those messages to be digitally signed in a way that creates like a proof that you indeed said something. Because what they did is that they did a comparison with the non-digital world. And what they found out is in the conversation that we have in the non-digital world, um, we oftentimes say things that we don't really mean to because we are treating them in a really casual way. So we just sometimes say to our colleagues some certain things that we don't really mean to or that we really haven't put that much thought about. But what they realize I, is that in, yeah. You <laughs> I mean everything I say on social media all the time. <laughs> 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 yeah, because that's sort of the um, the way that these conversations happen is not in a formal setting. So they, they have this way of being casual. So what they realized is that they didn't want it, uh, to have something in the digital world that was always creating a proof because that would indeed mean that you are treating them in a really formal way. And we'd also um, diminish the sort of uh, the, the mode that the casual conversations have. So they realized, well, this, this, um, these messages should be uh, signed because the other party should know that indeed you are talking to the other person, but these signatures should be denied. So the other person should know your identity and is aware that this is indeed you who are speaking, but they cannot transmit this proof to anybody else inside the conversation or outside the conversation. And that's basically what is deniability, which is one of the first misconceptions that there exists in deniability, because sometimes people say, Deniability um, denies authentication, but it's not that. Deniability is always in line with whatever task is taking in hand. And if that task that is taking in hand is authentication, then it should be authenticated, but the proof of it should not be able to be transmittable to anyone else. So, I know that's... Okay. <laughs> no, sorry. Um, so I think that maybe it's uh, good to give some examples at this point. So I, I know that the OTR paper or the slides, I forget, 
makes the analogy of basically a private conversation. You know, you're whispering something to someone or you're in private. If later you're accused of having said something, you can just say, I didn't say it. And that's that works great in private conversations because by by just by definition, you know, you're not expecting there to be any proof that you've said something in a private conversation except for the other person having heard it. And this is not true with many cryptographic protocols because if you sign something in PGP, for example, you have your signature key, right? And that never changes in PGP unless, you know, rarely ever changes unless you manually do something about it. And uh, in uh, OTR, there is this sort of publication of keys, the once they're useless and constant rotation of keys, which makes it such that if you go to court and, you know, I, I take a record of someone signing or encrypting or macking, um, authenticating a message with a bunch of keys, um, because those keys were likely published immediately afterwards, basically there, there's, no, there's no weight to that as evidence. So, however, um, I'm sure that OTR has been used many times and I'm sure it's there, I, there must be more than one court case where OTR has come up. But there was, there was a, a very famous case where OTR was used a long time ago, many years ago, where Chelsea Manning, who is, um, was a member of the U.S. military, uh, I think private first class at the U.S. military, and um, uh, they leaked a bunch of documents um, and um, or were accused of leaking a bunch of documents. And uh, as part of the evidence against them, you basically had these OTR um, chats with with the person who reported uh, Chelsea to the authorities. And I've always wondered, you know, we were in that position. This is the perfect sort of cypherpunk imagined scenario. It's almost as if it was taken straight out of the imagination of the OTR authors. You know, the NSA is chasing someone who's leaked, you know, confidential data and then they're used OTR, but then they had deniability. And so when they went to court, it couldn't be used against them. Um, but at the same time, it turns out that in in the process of that court case now, of course, you know, I don't want to ask this question as if I'm asking a gotcha question because really I'm not. I don't know anything about American law. And it, there, there could have been fantastic reasons for deniability not to have been brought up independently of its suitability as a cryptographic property and of its, you know, appropriateness in that particular context. But I guess, I mean, I, I have to wonder, you know, this was the perfect case for deniability. You could have said there's no evidence that links Chelsea to these logs. There's no evidence she ever spoke to um, Lamo about whatever. But this this was not this did not constitute any part of the argument. And so, do you know anything about this case? Are you able to? And also, even if you don't want to comment on it, which is fine, uh, how can you basically sort of uh, reason about deniability in this case? And also, are there any other cases where it could be perhaps more appropriate? Yeah. So let's talk about the court. Um, okay. So the first thing is that. Um, Usually the court system uh, in many countries, um, and it also differs by countries, and in countries it differs by the state or whatever they call in that country, the division, um, it differs the different laws and how they are applied. But in general, there is still like a part of the law which has not actually updated itself um, to the digital world. In the sense that until this day, for example, plain text evidence is used as, uh, plain text logs are used as evidence in court cases, 
which uh, from a cryptographic standpoint of view will not make sense because indeed plain text evidence is denoted by default because anyone can forge plain text if they want. But it's used many times as evidence during code because in cursor there's still not this notion of actually um, using digital tools or any kind of um, enforced authentication to actually prove that indeed it's this person who indeed authored this message. So when they brought up denability and code systems, I always say that the first thing in order to actually put denability in code systems would be to first to actually make the systems aware that there's this notion of digital signatures that sometimes they're used, sometimes they're not, but in general for charts at least they're not used. Um, to be aware of these notions and that if they are presented plaintiff's evidence, that that should not be enough. The same that, for example, when you present to a court uh, papers with a handwritten of someone, um, they can constitute evidence if you can prove that indeed that handwriting uh, belongs to the person you're trying to prosecute or you're trying to defend. Or if there's a signature of this person that you know indeed belongs to this person, then this paper can actually be used and called as so evidence. You know, that's, that's really kind of interesting because if I write something, I have to prove that, you know, someone else wrote yeah. it. But if I type something on a computer, yes. the, the, the standard of evidence suddenly becomes apparently yes. in some cases, in some, in some contexts, smaller. And so you're right. It is, it, it is a bit odd that we still have plain text um, being sort of authenticated by default uh, when it comes to the to courts. And I, I suppose that the courts must be relying either on the source of the plain text. For example, if Facebook gives mm -hmm. them this plain text, they say, you know, Facebook is an authoritative source. We know that they got this from their servers. We know... Mm -hmm. It wasn't modified. No Facebook employee ever looked at it or tampered with it, because obviously, you know, who who would ever you know do that? And um, at the same time, you know, I guess there's the notion of circumstantial evidence. Mm -hmm. uh, th th does it fit the rest of the evidence? But but again, that, that's a bit shaky. But do do you see a way in which we can maybe? make a better case for the deniability of digital logs. But I guess, you know, I guess you'd have to start with the deniability of, of plain text, which yeah. I mean, if, if that's not <laughs> deniable, then yeah. <laughs> you know, it's going to be, it's going to be a problem to, to stretch that all the way to talk to a judge. You know, I, I guess judges don't even know the difference between plain text and, and cipher text yeah. that, be, that became plain text. Yeah. Um, in many countries, there's actually not uh, a notion of the difference. I've seen sometimes that's used as evidence uh, linked to the media, like chats over SMTP that were found in the computer of someone. And because if they were found in this computer of someone, they are used as evidence in the curve, even though the username, for example, of this person is a complete acronym, it's a pseudonym that they use. So they maybe it doesn't really belong to them. Maybe someone opened the computer and typed for a while. Yeah, but they are used quite a lot, <laughs> plain text. And even even so, if you look at, for example, some examples in India, you have cases where WhatsApp screenshots are modified yeah. or photoshopped or uh, taken out of context. And then this is used to basically say that someone, um, I don't know, stole a baby or or did something terrible, uh, uh, killed someone yeah. or something like that. And then people in India have been lynched. And this is an actually, uh, maybe I'll link for it in the podcast description, stories where people have been lynched in India in public based on WhatsApp screenshots. Yeah. And, you know, so I, I guess the public also has a, has a problem differentiating. This is kind of even, those screenshots are kind of even worse than 
Oh, yes, okay. and if it's like a screenshot that has been printed on paper, then of course it could have been tampered by anybody looking at the Photoshop because it's not even the evidence in the actual mobile phone that you open it and you show like here is the chart. It's like a printed um, digit from the digital printed into the non-digital way, so that can always be tampered. But that's one of the, the first thing that I think we need in general the CURS system to understand that in order to present digital evidence as actual evidence. Then, we'll not, then we will need to actually have a signature or some kind of authentication, some kind of proof that indeed shows um, that this uh, plain text was actually authored by anyone. Because that's what happens with other kind of evidence that is presented at CURS when you show any kind of other paper, they actually do the handwriting check or they do, if it's not signed, then it's not valid, etc. Et so yep. maybe the same for the digital world. So, um, yeah. <laughs> Let's move to something more fun and optimistic. So um, there is OTR version one, two, three, and these are focused on the stuff we just talked about. Now you're working on um, OTR version four. You've been working on it for quite a few months now, maybe even a year or more. And um, that's pretty exciting because OTR actually has sort of been kind of sidelined a little bit by Signal and development has kind of stalled. Maybe Ian Goldberg's team has moved on to something else. Uh, but you're taking it up again. You're doing some exciting work there. And so, first of all, I want to say that's great. So thank you for, for moving OTR forward. We could use more uh, diverse approaches on security messaging. And second, I wanted to ask you, what are your priorities uh, with OTR version 4 and how is it going to be different from previous versions of OTR? Yes, uh, so we're moving forward uh, since a year and a half now completely. Um, we are moving forward to protocol in version 4, and we're also working with Jan Goldberg and Nico Ungera at the same time. Uh, the, main, uh, the main cryptographic primitives that are used right now in OTR were developed by a post, uh, postdoc uh, candidate, a doctoral candidate, sorry, a doctoral candidate from Ian Goldberg, so we're using those primitives from him. And uh, maybe what we tried is that during many years OTR got assault because of many different reasons. I think because there was not enough time for some people to actually spend uh, doing the protocol and then sort of signal to delete. And um, during that assault period of time, OTR became a little bit deprecated in the sense that a new communication model came, uh, came around. And this communication model was one that wanted offline conversations was one that wanted uh, out of order delivery of messages because um, during the time that OTI was created, we were using things like aging or pitching in which you will need uh, the person to be online to actually start a conversation. But with the uh, rise of mobile phones, uh, we don't need that anymore because we just send a message and when the other person So, so signal, signal was trying to imitate the SMS use case. Yeah, so the SMS use yeah. case uh, was trying to also move forward the mobile phones that was also becoming a big thing that people were using much more. Um, and OTR didn't really have uh, that much of a counterpart in the mobile world. They have uh, an implementation in conversations and also in chat secure, but that was all. And was also using XMPP. And another thing that OTR uh, was really focused on, or the community focused OTR a lot, was in XMPP. And right now, there's like a lot of um, conversations around if we should still use XMPP or not, because people are moving to other ways to actually deliver messages. 
And that's why we decided to, after that long assault period of time, to actually do a full version of OTR that indeed takes these things into account. So since the beginning, OTR was not a protocol that was bounded into anything. It was not bounded to an XMPP or RSC or whatever you use. It was open for everyone. So we tried to come back uh, to that notion again that you can use it on top of whatever messaging protocol you want to use. But also given the possibility of handling offline messages or handling uh, out of order delivery, plus also updating the cryptographic primitives to much safer uh, ones by using elliptic curves instead of the Hellman because they are faster and give you a nice security level. Um, by using also some ways to transmit the long-term keys in a deniable way that is much more deniable uh, in a stronger notions than what Signal uh, or OTI in its previous versions ever gave, and by also giving the two notions that are now uh, the notions that most people really like, which is the notion of forward secrecy and post-compromise security, um, that were born with OTR, but now we're always trying to give, the, to give the stronger version of those two notions. So that's basically why it's different. Um, the, the main focus that we're having right now is that we're doing an actual implementation for chat secure. So you can use OTR before on the mobile phone. Um, probably next year, what we will want is to also to have our own um, application of OTR itself that can work for mobile and desktop. We are thinking that a lot about that because one of the things uh, that I do as well is that I talk a lot about with the messaging community. And one of the complaints that the messaging community has had in the previous years was that there's too many applications to install. You have to install Telegram, Wire, Signal, WhatsApp, Facebook, Messenger, and it's becoming quite chaotic. So we were thinking that maybe having another application that implements OTR might not be uh, the wisest thing. So let's see what we come uh, around as a decision. But yeah, yeah. Wow, wow. So many things. This is more <laughs> more than I anticipated. So you you basically want to catch up with Signal. So you want to catch up with Signal. <laughs> on primitives have you know modern cryptographic primitives which will not only probably make OTR version 4 safer but also faster you know because yeah. the, the the difference in performance with these elliptic curve primitives is huge compared to uh, finite field um, uh, primitives and so that is very cool it'll also probably make it easier to implement um, yes. but also you want to Basically, so I think personally, my opinion is that the reason why Signal was able to get such a headway on OTR was because it was able to mimic the uh, SMS use case and specifically by having asynchronous key exchange. Yeah. So that is the big thing. You were able to establish a message in the same sense of basically someone, you know, when, I have, when I'm using SMS, I turn off my phone. Someone sends me a message, I turn it on. I get the message when I turn my phone back on. Yeah. And so, and SMS does this you know, without there being some plain text stored, well, no, there is some plain text stored somewhere, but it does this without like basically both parties being connected to a server at the same time. And so you want to catch up in terms of primitives. You want to catch yeah. up in terms of use cases, but you want to have deniability under stronger notions than Signal. Yes. So that is, you know, you're trying to actually beat Signal at something. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Um, yeah, the protocol is already written, so uh, that's basically done. Um, the only oh. thing that we're missing, and it's sort of implemented in a 70% already in C. Um, so yeah, it's only like finishing implementation things right now. <laughs> no, no one's going to look at it unless it's written in Rust. You know, you have to be cool. Yes. You have to be one of the cool kids <laughs> written in Rust. Um, I'm just, I'm obviously just joking. Uh, that's very cool. 
uh, but I'm not even done. You're, I'm not even done yet. You know, the, the, you're doing this, but at the same time, you're also trying to address the problem of having many, you know, I, I have a different messaging app on my phone for every person almost that I speak to. <laughs> and it's, it is kind of annoying. And there was a talk by Moxie at CCC recently, the last CCC in December. Great talk, by the way, I think underrated talk, but uh, he, he does he does explain uh, the problem of basically running a service and federating uh, mm-hmm. or, or, you know, the, the problems with federating a service and why Signal isn't federating or going to federate. Yeah. And he, he, I think he makes some pretty good points. It's easy to just hit on him and say, well, you know, you're not free enough, you're not open enough and kind of underestimate the sort of trade-offs that he has to make in order for Signal to actually run and work mm-hmm. and, and, and function normally, especially with the limited resources that he has as a nonprofit. And so at the same time, I think it's really important to look at this question critically and say, do I want to install seven apps from Facebook, two apps mm-hmm. from Google, three apps from Apple, whatever, you know, it's nine from Microsoft in order to, yeah. that's obviously exaggeration, but uh, maybe one day it'll be true in order to be able to talk to my family and my friends at the same time. Wow. What a, what a, what a, what a serious request, right? <laughs> like what a, what a crazy request that I'm making here. Um, how much have you guys, and I understand if you haven't looked at this yet, because it's definitely you've looked at a lot of stuff already, but how much have you guys looked at the problems with federation? And, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so the only like messaging protocol that you can sort of say that indeed has federation is called SMDP. And SMDP oh, there's, there's has, matrix. There's matrix. Well, there's there's matrix. And the first one, I guess, SMDP. Um, and XMPP, one of the problems is that right now people are actually trying to move forward from it because it's sort of like, they see also like this is like a little bit of archive technology that we should not use anymore and we should focus on other things. That's what like the complaints that I hear from people around XMPP, while the XMPP community is trying to push other things more nicer. It would be really nice to actually have federation in a nice way. I know that... Um, for example, one of the aims of the current MLS uh, working group on IETF is not to solve federation, but it's to give at least a protocol that can uh, sort of work on top of different uh, messaging protocols as well. Um, so they try not only to focus, for example, in creating a new application, a new app that you can install, such as what other protocols have done, but actually to give us a protocol that can work as sort of TLS in the sense that it can work on top of whatever you put and it should be fine enough. So I think maybe that's a good way to look forward. Um, it's what I, we've been thinking about OTR, but to be fair, we haven't looked that much into how to solve federation, but it's also between one of the reasons why I don't like people installing that much applications on the phone is from a usability perspective because it's horrible as a user to have to install a thousand apps and have to use them. But also from a security perspective in the sense that if you install more apps in your phone, uh, you don't know what kind of code you're running. Your attack so surface is bigger. Yeah, it's bigger. <laughs> it would For example, recently we had this really serious bug in the WhatsApp uh, yeah. voice over IP stack, which was written in C and was common across iOS and Android. And then, you know, if, if you were just using Signal or just using iMessage, you wouldn't mm-hmm. be, if I, but you have to install 50 apps. Frankly, I have yeah. trouble kind of remembering which person yes. <laughs> I want to share a photo. I have to open each app individually first. Um, but and the UI is also so very different between applications. It's not like a Samba UI. Yeah, so that's also kind of annoying. Memory. It's true. You know, iMessage just recently got a reply feature. You know, it's gonna, <laughs> of course, Apple implemented it in this revolutionary, you know, 
best best reply feature had to really think I don't know it. if in the path forward would be also do a standardization in that mother of like actually having one protocol that indeed um well that's so, what it is but yeah this, this brings me to actually I wanted to ask a kind of critical question if you if you'll allow me um so I think one of the points people make against XMPP is that it is too extensible. You know, yes. it's just too, and so basically, if I want to federate, I can have 10 different services and all of them are running these different XEP uh, mm -hmm. plugins. I, I forget mm -hmm. what they're called. And uh, they all, like one of them supports profile pictures, but the other does not and so on. And so maybe you can base yourself on XMPP, but have you considered maybe like sort of having an overarching spec on top of XMPP saying, you know, the OTR v4 federation spec is XMPP and this list of XCPs, mm -hmm. which which must be implemented, and you can't add or remove any of them. Or yeah. do you have any similar approach? Because Moxie makes a good point on this, and you, you have to sort of like address yes. it. How do you basically his overarching point? I think, from if I recall his his talk uh, correctly, is that there is a very strong issue with quality control when you have federation. And yes. so how, how do you plan uh, to address this with uh, federation on top of OTR version four? Yeah, so uh, coming back to the previous point, so in XMPP, yes, it's really difficult, uh, the different standards, XCPs that they call it, because sometimes, for example, they propose something and that standard gets deprecated, but some um, kind of application, some kind of client indeed implemented that, so then it's deprecated and then you have to update to the new version, if there's a new version, or sometimes they create another uh, document, now you have to install. So this is a problem where they have uh, sometimes inter, um, uh, different kind of applications that don't speak to each other because they install some version of some XCP that later got deprecated or later was overridden by some other XCP. So that's for sure a problem. Another problem that I know that happened with OTR is that in a way, because OTR was protocol agnostic, um, what it meant is that people just took and implemented OTRs over XMPP or over IRC or over whatever, but they implemented in the way that they wanted. And that's one of the reasons why the actual implementations of OTR in its previous version don't really work, because they took, for example, some implementation took the version 2 of OTR, some implementation took the version 3, and they expected to speak to each other, but they couldn't because some of them didn't have the full capabilities. One of so, the things that, yeah. <laughs> so uh, you, uh, you can, uh, I, I'd love for you to continue. I just want to ask a yeah. quick question. So are you saying that OTR version four will not have uh, backward compatibility with uh, version three and so on? So OTR version four has backward compatibility with version three, but not from any of the other versions. It will only have with version three because okay. we want people to update to new ones. <laughs> We're forcing people. Um, so, um, so one of the things that we did also as part of OTRs a community is that we reach out to the RSC um, uh, people and also to the SMPP people to ask them what kind of problems do they actually have when implementing OTR. And what we are doing right now is also writing an XCP and an actual document that addresses the kind of um, comments that they have or the kind of things that they didn't work for them. Because that's what one of the actual critiques that were, for example, from the XMPP community of OTR, that they didn't know exactly how to implement OTR. They had this huge messaging protocol and they sort of had an idea how to implement OTR and they went through the path that they chose, but they didn't have like actual 
good guidance to guide them. So what we what we are doing also is creating like a document for them for just general guidelines of what is good to actually have if you are implementing OTR with SensibleDP and the same for OTR over IRC. But what which threats are you going to use to make them follow these guidelines? <laughs> basically, I mean, yeah. uh, how how are you going to enforce uh, these uh, these guidelines? You know, when you when yes. you when, when you're running centralized service, you don't even have to think about that. But in your case, you basically is there going to be some sort of like overarching authority that says, you know, you you get to be part of the federation, but you don't? Or yeah. is there some other approach? I would really not like to go into the authority path because uh, because of personal reasons, I guess. But if it means, it means. But one of the things that we have been doing is actually helping the implementers and see if opening the communication channel. So that's one of the biggest things that I think people wanted more than like having a, a person that says this is the only way you should implement and please read the specification and if you don't understand it don't come to me <laughs> but actually what people in the community have actually wanted is to have an open channel and they say hey can you check this implementation hey can you explain me like how the protocol works that actually at least for OTR has worked much more nicely than actually trying to impose the protocol over them mm -hmm. to have that open channel no, that, that doesn't mean that, for example, the OTR community or the group that OTR developers cannot be checking all the OTR implementations that exist out there. I'm sure that there's going to be some problems with it, but at least to have, like, you know, the open channel for them to reach out if they have any problem. And if there's, like, a weakness found in one of the OTR's implementations, at least we can help them solve them and not, like, shame on them. Because that's what happens sometimes, especially this has been a critique sometimes to the cryptography community that when people implement cryptography, there's this huge amount of shame to developers. Oh, Why I, do we implement it correctly? Uh, Sophia, I wouldn't know. I have no experience personally with being shamed <laughs> with, or broken secret messaging implementation. You must yeah. be talking about someone else. Personally, this is not something that I've ever encountered ever in my career, and especially not multiple times. Um, so. Yeah, but... I don't know, like, I feel like as a person that does cryptography, if someone tell me implement this network protocol, I will have no clue on how to actually implement the network protocol. And, and the network protocols, people don't laugh at me, or the compiler people don't laugh at me. But in the cryptographic community, and the security community, there is sort of this uh, shame way of dealing with developers that sometimes make mistakes. And that's something yeah. we don't want in OTR. It's a, it's a serious problem, I agree. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> Um, okay, so we're running out of time almost. We have uh, th three minutes left, I'm sorry to say. I just wanted to ask you a last question. Um, so I know that you recently started working at Cloudflare. Congratulations. Uh, are there any interesting projects, anything you want to share with the audience, any cool stuff you've been working on at Cloudflare recently? Yeah, so we're, we're working on the, the, I guess, protocol that was already presented in the podcast, which is the CamTLS. Uh, which is a way to have post-quantum TLS without actually using digital signatures, by rather by using key encapsulation mechanisms. And I guess you can check the podcast to know more. What I'm doing at that, uh, that side is um, um, I'm implementing uh, most of it in Golang, uh, in the TLS suite of Golang itself. So by using also another thing from TLS that is, used, that is called delegated credentials. And another thing that I'm uh, right now digging into is to actually implementations and also checking the drafts from RTF from the oblivious to the random protocols 
that is basically a way um, a way in which uh, you use sort of a pseudo-random function, you create a pseudo-random function without uh, the server or the client actually knowing the sort of the parameters from the other party um, that has lots of applications in the paid protocol, et cetera, et cetera. But that's, that's what I'm doing. That's wonderful. Uh, we covered, uh, as you said, we covered CamTLS in actually the very first ever episode of, of cryptography fm so i'm gonna link that uh, below I'm, I'm excited to see and yeah actually yeah we, we i even i just remembered we actually I, I asked the people and they said people at cloudflare were interested and somehow it didn't even occur to me that yes I, i'm having the person who does crypto at cloudflare come on yes they must be working on it uh, so yeah that, that's uh, that's very exciting um sophia thank you so much thank for a uh, very impressive work on uh, otr version 4 very exciting work uh, anything to say before we sign off? Yeah. Well, thank you very much for inviting me and to you all for listening. And I hope you will come back to OTR, hopefully. Great. And thanks for tuning in to Cryptography FM. Maybe next time it can be you who's talking about your cool research or your cool um, implementation or project, whether you've uh, implemented a secure messaging scheme, uh, broken the discrete logarithm, who knows? Come and have a conversation about it. This is what this show is all about, a new medium for people to share their interesting, uh, passionate work in applied cryptography. But whether you're a listener or an active participant, I hope to see you again next week on Cryptography FM. Cryptography FM.